Find a problem that you can't stop thinking about. Know that problem inside and out. Talk to anyone that you possibly can about it. It's so important to keep going back to that problem and to kind of find ways to keep believing in yourself. Hi, everyone. This is Neil Devani, and welcome to season two of The Operators. This season, we're talking to people who have had a vision of changing the world and actually took the leap of faith to pursue that vision. Our guests include tech startup founders, nonprofit leaders, and rising political stars. Each guest has found supporters for their vision, built all-star teams to pursue it, and raised millions of dollars to make it all happen. We get to hear their stories and how they've overcome the obstacles to creating change. The Operators is produced by Necessary Ventures, an early-stage venture firm investing in what the world needs. Learn more at Necessary.vc. Before we meet today's guest, on The Operators, we like to highlight brands doing good. Today's is Warby Parker, the top online eyeglasses company. Warby Parker has distributed millions of pairs of glasses to those in need through their Buy a Pair, Give a Pair program. And they are now donating PPE and other preventative health supplies to those in the fight against COVID. Go to warbyparker.com slash the operators to learn more. Now let's meet today's guest. Shivani Saroya is the founder and CEO of Tala, one of the top mobile lending companies in the world. Tala has originated over a billion dollars in loans to over 4 million customers who use these loans to expand their businesses, pay school fees and bills, and build more stable financial lives. Tala is the largest non-bank lender in Kenya and the top digital lender across its current markets with offices in Santa Monica, Nairobi, Manila, Mexico City, and Bangalore. Shivani's journey is a unique one. Let's learn more from her. Shivani, thank you for being here. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Uh, so before we jump in, I wanted to just uh, hear a little bit more about how things have been for you um, since we're going to be releasing these uh, a few months from now when we're recording. Uh, we're in the midst of the uh, coronavirus lockdown. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've been staying sane. What's been uh, the most enjoyable part of this for you? Let's see. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, you know, like not to sound cheesy or anything uh, about it, but I think one of the things is um, for me personally, I think it's definitely given me a reframe um, of what is important. Um, it is it is a time of thinking about like, <clears throat> you know, how you work, how you interact with people, being really intentional about it. Um I think another thing is, in particular, the work that we do is truly global. Uh, so we work across, you know, India, the Philippines, Mexico, and Kenya. Um, and so in some ways for us, it's like, while we're all facing it here in the U.S., it's also just realizing, you know, how much more our customers are facing it. Um, and also kind of, I don't know, like, in some ways, taking inspiration from the fact that, you know, when we've been interacting with them, you know, they're like, yeah, this crisis is happening, but like, I'm resilient every day, right? I have volatility in my life every day. I face emergencies all the time. Um, and so you just kind of have a realization of the safety you live in. Um, and that, and that, like, you know, I think this is a moment where we're not taking it for granted. Um, and so it kind of brings the the empathy forward for what our customers face every single day anyway. 
Um, so that's like something that's happening for me is like just constantly reminding our team of that, constantly reminding myself of that. Um, and then another fun note I would say is, um, I don't know, like everyone on our team, we're like over 500 people. Uh, we work across multiple countries. We have multiple offices. And it's been it's been seamless in terms of our ability to interact with each other, be productive, all those things. Um, and then on a personal note, like I've become more creative. I've never really cooked prior to COVID <laughs> um, at all. <laughs> and so now it's like I'm making lots of different meals um, just because I've been forced to. And so it actually kind of reminds you of that whole like innovator's mindset of like when you actually have to do something, new things emerge. Um, so that's been fun. I, uh, I've been jokingly kind of documenting my cooking injuries. I get one every week. Oh, wow. <laughs> like literally every single week, like clockwork, I get a new one. Um, What's been the worst one so far? Oh, I don't know if I should talk about it on air, but uh, I, so I think it's called a mandolin slicer. Yeah. Um, and so I used one. I know. Not great. Got one, I got a pretty big cut on one of my thumbs. Suffice <laughs> um, it to say, you probably will not be cooking as much post lockdown. No, I think I will. That's what I mean is like, I think I think I've one realized it's not as hard as I thought. And two, I really enjoy it. Like I'm, I'm starting to realize like how to make dressings in a really simple way, how to flavor things. Um, it's just, it's actually been really fun. I mean, I don't think I'll take the time that I've taken in cooking my meals when this is all done, but I definitely think, you know, kind of putting things together is not as hard as I expected. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I feel like a lot of people I know have gotten really into uh, baking bread lately. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like we've been in this moment of like carbs are bad, everyone's trying to be keto, but then lockdown happens and everyone is baking loaves of sourdough every day. I know. Well, we, I mean, I wouldn't, I would say that we are definitely on that bandwagon at our company. Um, we have a channel called, you know, Tala Bake Off. And so every single week, we have a baking challenge. It, it has been really fun, though. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so speaking about Tala, uh, it's an amazing organization. You've helped uh, so many people um, achieve uh, more uh, stable financial positions uh, through, through mobile lending. Um, it'd be great to just kind of get some, some fast facts on the progress you guys have made to date um, with regard to how many people and the amount of loans. Um, and then jumping into, you know, how you got started. Sure. Um, so to date, um, we, as I mentioned, work across four different countries. So we work in Kenya, the Philippines, Mexico, and India. Um, we now have over 5 million borrowers that have actually borrowed from our platform. Um, we've dispersed over 2.5 billion in credit origination to now, till now. Um, so over the last, you know, I would say four and a half years. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's been, it's been remarkable, you know, just to realize that, you know, back in 2014, 2015, when I was just getting started, um, the idea of the kind of relationships we wanted to create with our customers um, purely can exist. 
Um, and so outside of credit, we've also provided them with other financial products and also financial education content in our Android application as well. Awesome. So where, where did the idea for Tala come from? I'm sure, you know, I remember when we were both in, in starting block years and years ago, like Grameen Bank was a big topic. I think Kiva uh, was starting to be formed around then. Did you look at these organizations or was it somewhere else? I mean, I definitely was inspired by Muhammad Yunus. Um, so when I first started my career in investment banking, um, I had an opportunity to meet him. And, you know, I was blown away by the idea that, you know, finance and, um, you know, I don't know, like thinking of myself as an analyst being like, maybe the work I do could be helpful in microfinance and I could actually make a meaningful difference in solving global poverty. Like I was so naive but the idea that it was so simple um, and really the crux of, you know, his model of group lending and microfinance um, was very much centered around the idea of believing in people, right, and trust. Um, and how do we use kind of community-driven um, kind of trust and social pressure to provide financial service products to customers? Um, so I think that, that like, I think that intentionality or that like that piece really struck me and it definitely compelled me to kind of start my journey. Um, so from there, I ended up actually working in microfinance myself and wanting to see it firsthand. Um, I realized that, you know, while the model was working, what what I found to be some of the flaws were one, that it was centered around a group as opposed to the individual. And I really wanted, you know, every time I talked to customers, they would tell me like, what about myself, right? Like I'm different than just being part of this community. And I think that's another thing that we have to remind ourselves is that while we are part of a community, we also have our own hopes, our own needs, our own wants. And so how do we as a financial services company understand that financial life uniquely for each individual? Um, and then the second thing I think was, realizing that customers needed products outside of just credit. Um, and so, um, you know, when we think about the model of Grameen, um, it was very centered on just microcredit and kind of continuing to lend to the same population without having any external data that you could provide to a bank. Um, and so um, I was like, well, I think this is great, but we need to do more. And so I wanted to learn more about economic systems um, and data science and see what I could do to gain knowledge in the area. And so went back to school, studied econometrics, data science, went to go work at the UN Population Fund. And I ended up actually kind of having a really life-changing moment where, um, you know, I worked across nine different countries in West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and ended up actually getting to interview a little over 3,500 individuals in person um, and really understanding those micro decisions firsthand, right? So yes, it started with this same idea of believing in people, but the next part of it for me was really being able to listen and learn and walk alongside them and see really what it is that they were doing with money. Um, and I realized that there was a tremendous amount of purchasing power. Um, we just couldn't see it. And they were totally consumers just like the rest of us. But again, that perception of risk remained. 
And so again, for me, it came back down to how do I at a foundational level really start to help build both the data systems? So how do we have scalable data on these customers that we can use to do credit scoring? And how can we find a low cost channel that we can actually transact um, and interact with these customers? Um, and that's really where I started to realize mobile phones could be the answer for us. Um, and so when I looked around at our customers or the customers I was interacting with, a lot of them had Android devices. Um, and so that was kind of the first piece. Uh, and then I ended up actually getting a little jaded. I'll, I'll be honest, <laughs> you know, after interviewing so many people and being and working across so many different countries and realizing that the problem existed in every single country, um, you kind of have a moment where you're like, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? <laughs> um, is, is that what led you to, to start a company? Because it seems like there's a lot of founders who I think come from the category of they're going to start a company no matter what it is, and they're looking for a right problem to solve. Mm -hmm. And then there's another kind of founder who becomes obsessed with a certain problem or a user. It sounds like you're in the second category. Is that fair to say? Totally. I did not think I was going to become an entrepreneur at all. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I joke about it all the time. It's like I found a problem that I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, and no matter how hard I tried to stop thinking about it, it kind of kept eating at me, you know. So when did you decide that like uh, a for-profit technology company is the right way to go about it as opposed to say, a nonprofit or working inside a larger company or even working, continue, continue working at the UN or another organization like that? How do you decide that a startup is the way to go? Um, you know, and I, and I guess just like, to be honest, I think I didn't, you know, in some ways, part of it was, I mean, I think the difference is because I had a problem I wanted to solve, I just started focusing on solving it. Right. So the company and the startup and all those other pieces um, kind of took on a life of their own um, because really what happened was after I left the UN, I came back to the US, I ended up actually working at Citigroup, um, going back into investment banking because I was kind of jaded. Um, and I was kind of like, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll do this for a little bit and we'll see what happens. And, uh, but I couldn't forget about what I had seen. And so I learned how to code um, and ended up actually developing our prototype on my own while I was working full time. Wow. Um, and then use my savings to actually start testing the model. Um, and, you know, I, because I think my career had spanned both the development industry plus the private sector, um, in my opinion, I thought, you know, unless we prove that these are, again, true consumers that have purchasing power and that can pay for financial products in the same way that you and I can, we're not going to fully solve the problem, right? Part of the problem is still that perception of risk. Part of the problem is that we assume that these individuals are different than us. And so to equalize that, we have to prove that a business model can work. Um, so I think that was kind of part of my solution is just kind of starting with that approach. Um, and, and I'll be honest, like that's when things kind of took on their, a life of their own. Like I remember my boss at Citigroup actually jokingly said this to me and he's like, I think you have another job, <laughs> you know, cause he's like, you're always working. And like, this is the thing that's like 
driving you. I was, you know, I was doing both things at once. Um, yeah. So it's so, to, to be clear, you um, interviewed 3,500 people. You learned to code, built an app, put your own money up as the, the credit for your users before you really thought like, I'm starting a company, this is going to be a startup. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds inverse from a lot of people, a lot of stories I hear. Um, and that's what I mean is like, I think, you know, it's like when we talk about mindset and we talk about these things, I think sometimes we get so caught up in what something will become um, that we that we forget the like basics of just like, just try, right? Like just, just see what happens. There's nothing to lose really. That's true. That's true. It's just a little bit of time and energy um, to validate your beliefs. Um, I want to go back before we move forward into the the why. You know, even when you were uh, just starting out in investment banking, it sounds like you were thinking about these kinds of things about microfinance and helping people. Where does that come from for you? Where Where do you think the desire to help other people originates? It's a good question. A very deep question. <laughs> I think hard one. I don't know. I mean, I, I really do believe that I think maybe I believe in the potential of people. Um, and, you know, when I think about the why, I think it is really just I think maybe something that drives me is when I see that people don't believe in themselves. Um, it kind of affects me because I really I think like we all have to have that belief in ourselves. And then it's like, how can we equalize the opportunities? How can we equalize the choices? Um, but the ability resides in everybody, right? Um, and I think it's really a matter of, you know, the resources that each one of us has access to. And I think sometimes the reason that people stop believing in themselves is they realize they don't have the resources, right? So it creates this negative effect on themselves. Um, and so I think growing up both you know, in the US and in India, I think I was able to see that um, that inequality of the resources, but I was able to understand that each one of us actually has it. It's just, you know, and so something that's always just driven me is how do I help create the systems where there is more of that uh, equalization of resources and opportunities? Yeah. Is, is there anyone, you know, from your uh, childhood, either like a real person or fictional that you, that you look to as a role model that kind of embodied that idea? Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm extremely lucky in that I think my parents gave that to me. My grandmother gave that to me. Um, you know, I really, I think in some ways, like, I just, I think they taught me that I was not different than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think they just put me into so many different environments as I grew up that, you know, like I, I just, I didn't see a difference. Um, and so in some ways, I think it is a little bit of that innateness or that sort of naiveness, you can say, whatever it is. But um, I think that's still like when I did those 3,500 interviews, if you think about it, it's like people could have been scared <laughs> and they could have been like, why is this person asking me all these questions? Why is she asking to like go to work with me? Um, but the point is that I was just like the rest of them. Right. And so 
I think that's what we kind of all need to remember is that, you know, in some ways there is that shared um, humanity. And so maybe that's just like how I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's beautiful. Um, so, so, okay, back to, you know, where we are, where you're um, back at the bank, you're doing this on the side, you're working basically two full-time jobs. At what point did it become clear, like, okay, it's time to make this the, the, the full-time job. This is my main focus now, whether it was starting a company or continuing to run it as like a, a project that you're still evaluating. Well, so after my boss and I had that conversation, um, you know, really, I was like, huh, do I have another job? <laughs> um, and so I actually, you know, came in and the next day was like, okay, I quit. And he's like, don't do that. <laughs> I believe um, what he said at that point. And, uh, and so instead he said, why don't you take some time off um, and think about it? And I did, but obviously I didn't really take time off. I just worked on Tala. Um, and about a month later, I realized, you know, this is what I want to do. Um, and I'm just going to go for it. So I did. That's awesome. What was it hard for you to come to that conclusion of I'm going to quit uh, the first time you said it? Or was it obvious as soon as you thought about it? Um, no, I mean, I would say that it wasn't that it was hard. I think there were moments where I talked to my friends, I talked to my parents, um, and everyone was like, you have another job. (laughs) What are you do? You actually are working all the time on something else, too. Um, So I think it was sort of grappling with, like, could I do it? You know, Um, how would I do it? All of those things. But again, like I, I would say this is another one of those things that I always have to remind myself is that. I had savings, right? I was working in investment banking. Um, I'm well-educated. And so I I think that's the one thing I would say is that, you know, I had the luxury of being able to come in the next day and say that to my boss when many other people don't. And so I think that was another reason that I realized, like, because I have that luxury, I should take the chance. Yeah. Was so... Um, were you afraid at all? Did you have any fears or, or no? Yeah, totally. Um, but, but I don't know. I think that the, the momentum of it and like for, I mean, not like, I'll be honest. It's like, you know, back in those days when I was working, when I was working full time and starting Tala, I was sleeping maybe two to three hours a day. Um, but I never felt more alive than I did than I, you know, like, it was so exhilarating getting to see something that you're creating actually starting to work. Um, and so in that sense, like, of course it was scary, but I think that the momentum of it and the like sheer, just like, Hey, I'm at least doing something about it. There was something that was pushing me forward. Yeah. Did you, did you have a lot more conversations? It sounds like you talked to people in your family and they were very supportive um, was there anyone that was exceptionally supportive? Um, I remember a conversation I had with my dad. Um, and I remember we were sitting outside and by this point, I think I had applied for, you know, uh, the echoing green fellowship. So it was a business plan competition. Mm-hmm. And he, like, I remember I, we were, I think I was far enough along into the process. Like it was right before the finals or something like that. And we were sitting outside 
And he said, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. You have to do this. And I think like just like the matter of factness behind how he said that, um, just kind of like there was something in that moment that I was like, huh, like he believes so strongly in me and in what I want to do that like I got to do it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. With We don't have to disclose who they are, but was there anyone on the other side of it who was not necessarily uh, uh, trying to pull you down, but uh, maybe cautioning you, saying this is like a big risk, you should think about it, that kind of stuff? Totally. I had a lot of people that were just like, hey, this is a nice little hobby that you have. <laughs> um, but really, what's it going to become, you know? Or, I mean, look, like, while I was starting Tala, I, you know, before I actually went full time and we got funding and all this stuff, I emailed about 1500 people on LinkedIn. Wow. Um, most people actually were so willing to give me advice um, and talk to me and teach me about the industry. Um, but a lot of people were pretty rude. right? <laughs> and a lot of people told me that, you know, there's no way that this could actually end up being a real company. Um, and that I should go, you know, go back to the UN or go join another NGO or other things. Um, it's just more that the, I would say the people that believed in it outweighed the people that were negative. Did you find any of the negativity uh, useful in any way? Or was it more just, this isn't helpful and just dismiss it? No, like, so, I mean, maybe something that I, I like I go into my life with is, I think feedback is like Christmas. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I mean, honestly, it's like I was doing phone calls in the bathroom, in my car, like in the hallways, like anywhere that I could get feedback, I tried. And so even when I got negative feedback, the question was always like, don't be upset about that. Of course, there's a moment of being deflated um, and being disappointed, but it's really like, Every single time you get it or a conversation that is hard, what are you learning from that, right? There's always going to be some truth in a good or bad conversation. Um, and it's, I think, our job um, as people that are trying to solve a really, really big problem to be open to both kinds. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, even when people were negative about it, I said, you know, are there other people that I can talk to that um, can teach me more about what you're saying, you know? Um, so I think that changes again, how people then interact with you as well, because they know you're open to listening. So let's, let's talk more about tactics. You know, you, you left your job, um, and now you're, uh, funding all of this out of your savings. How did you start building support more than just people saying, go for it. People actually saying, here's some money to help, or let me work with you, that kind of stuff. You know, I think, um, so I'll talk about what was hard, but I'll also talk about what maybe came naturally or was easier for me. Um, and I think this goes back to, again, not being afraid to ask questions or get feedback. I put myself out there, you know, like I got onto Twitter, I got onto lots and lots of different kind of forums. I applied to different, you know, social enterprise competitions and business plan competitions. Um and I think in some ways it's like, you know, I think if I remember back or like if I think about something, it's like so many founders 
hold their idea as being so uh, like precious, right? Um, and the reality is like, you know, and, and I see this now, it's like, yes, the idea is definitely something and what you're going after is unique, right? But but it's really how you're going to do that. And unless you're willing to share and be vulnerable um, about what it is you're trying to build, in some ways, how can you go get the resources you need to go fulfill that idea, right? And so um, I think in some ways, like, because I was so focused on a problem versus the company being my thing um, and, you know, the name of the company, how it happened, all those things. Like I knew nothing about venture capital. I knew nothing about starting a company or, um, you know, I mean, I worked in investment banking, so I understood cap tables and equity and, you know, discounted cash flows and all those things. Um, but very much from the private sector side, not from the startup side. Um, and so like, you know, I like, it's like, <laughs> I was so naive that I think it helped me <laughs> because I didn't focus in on those things that I see so many founders talk about, right? It's like, which investor did they get as their lead investor? All those things. Like I was just focused on solving a problem. And so it didn't matter to me where the money came or, you know, like all of those things. I just wanted really good people on our team. Um, and so, you know, people started reaching out and they would ask to volunteer. They would ask to put in time while they were working full time. And so after I went full time, I think we had about 30 different people kind of voluntarily helping me that were not getting paid. Um, and then my next step was, again, because I didn't know anything about VC, I was actually applying to all these fellowships. And, and so I, I was able to kind of put together a, a small pool of capital um, to get started and actually hire a few people to the onto the team. Um, and then uh, our, our first lawyer always jokes about this, but um, eventually what happened is our one of we, we got an angel investor that reached out to me totally cold. <laughs> um, and I deleted the email accidentally because I thought it was spam. <laughs> Luckily, he wrote back and he was like, here's my angel list profile. I'm legit. Um, I'm really interested in the work you've done. I've read a blog post that you wrote about it um, and would love to talk to you about it. And then, um, you know, he said, how much are you raising? And, you know, it all came together in a really short period of time. But she jokes about the fact that we got a term sheet before we were even incorporated as a company. <laughs> That's a great place to be. Yeah. Uh, who is the who is this investor? Um, so he's an angel investor uh, based in Chicago. Um, so that was kind of our first capital in. And then uh, we did a real seed round in 2013. And that was led by lowercase capital. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so in terms of you know, financing, it sounds like the fellowships were really uh, what got you uh, the first money in outside of your own money. Um, and then you had the good fortune of having um, these different volunteers uh, who reached out to you from the work that you were doing online. Mm -hmm. uh, when you raised money, did you then go out and start hiring more people or um, were you already kind of at a team that you wanted to have? Um, I would say a mix of both. I mean, when we raised money at that point, we were three people. 
Um, and, you know, uh, we raised a $1.2 million round. And so we ended up actually increasing the team. I think at the most, we ended up by the, you know, a year later, about 10 people. Um, we stayed pretty lean as a team, honestly. And I think part of it was, I think, you know, like, I don't know. It's like, I, it's so funny. It's like, if I look back on it, would I have done it differently? Would I have grown us faster? Would I have taken more risks? Probably. Um, but again, I think, you know, none of us really, other than maybe two of the people on the team had ever, had ever worked at a venture back startup. Right. And so we were all coming at this from our different, you know, kind of skill sets and expertise and knowledge. Um, and again, just so focused on being like, well, like, it's crazy that we have this capital suddenly, but we just like have to go prove things. And so we just kept taking on more work ourselves. <laughs> um, and then finally, I think it was kind of like realizing, hey, this thing is starting to move. This thing actually has legs. Like we, we physically can't stay up all night and work all day, <laughs> you know? Um, but like we would sleep with our phones by our heads because we were actually servicing all of our customers ourselves. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how long did that last for that kind of mode? Because you were doing that, you know, even when you were working part time, like how long were you in, uh, you know, 24 seven kind of mode? Um, probably, you know, so we raced in the end of 2013, we kept going like that uh, really until summer of 2015. And then um, at that point we raised our series A um, and then at that point, I, you know, that was when that, you know, honestly, that's when we actually started becoming more formalized as a company. Um, we started, you know, our investors were kind of like, hey, you should probably hire some people that have run a company before. <laughs> um, things not like that. Not a bad suggestion. Not a bad suggestion at all. And, it, and I think, again, like, you know, I guess I, I think of it as like, we were so open to those suggestions, right? Like there was no ego in it. Um, and I, and I think, I think because of that, it's like we were able to kind of continue propelling um, and taking risks. That was like where my brain was. Like, I, I have to go back to this point of, you know, I think it's hard now, I would actually say in some ways harder than it was in the beginning. Um, because, you know, as you actually start to prove things out, you actually start to realize every risk you take um, is a bigger one in some ways, right? And if you can if you can change that mindset as you go through the journey of realizing, hey, I'm trying to solve a problem. And so I just need to be able to maintain almost that beginner's mindset, that is gonna help you whether it's in the beginning or at, you know, like even when you're a bigger company. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you're, you're hiring people, raising money. It's a real company now. Um, you know, as you started to move further away from uh, kind of having your hands in every different part of, part of the company, um, have you had any, any challenges in that? Totally. Um, I mean, it is, it is my baby, you know, and I think for me, I think, uh, I think the challenges come from, you know, just wanting to make sure that we fulfill that customer promise um, and staying close to our customers. And so, 
like I've had to realize I can't be in every conversation. Um, I've had to realize that there's like only a certain amount of hours per day. Um, but like you have that nagging feeling that like, it's like FOMO. <laughs> You're like, I wish I was part of that. I knew I could have like said something differently than somebody else did. Um, you always, you always have a little bit of that, but I think where I've had to focus is like, what's the most important thing to me? Um, and if I know that people are doing it for the right reasons, um, I really have to learn how to trust in the same way. So like our, like one of my core values is radical trust. And the reason it is that is that we trust our customers. I trust that these people have potential. Um, and that they have the ability to repay us and the willingness to repay us. And so in the same way, if I don't trust the people that are on our team, um, then I'm going to hold us back as well. And so it's super hard to let go. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, but I think it comes down to like like almost figuring out a way to to get to know your team um, and get to know those people at a really deep level. Um, and if you can connect on that level, then I think you have a better shot of being able to trust that they have the right skill sets and knowledge um, to, you know, be in those other meetings or make decisions without you. Are there, are there times where that's burned you and then you've had to figure out how to keep doing it or have you been lucky so far? Um, I think that when, uh, I would say that it's when I've hired for skill versus that kind of, um, you know, that feeling of trust or that feeling that this person is here for the mission and the same reasons, um, that's when I've been burned, but it hasn't been the other way around. Like, of course, I mean, there's times when someone, you realize you really trust them and they're here for all the right reasons but it's not working out, that's a real hard place to be as well. But you can have that conversation um, because you know in some ways that person will stay a part of your life, they'll stay a part of the journey, um, and you can be a little bit more open about it. But it's when you've hired and you knew it was the wrong reason that uh, I think you you kind of, you have a moment of being like, why didn't I listen to myself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, your intuition got you this far and, and probably has some role to play going forward. Mm -hmm. um, are there things that you've learned that you didn't expect? Um, let's say, you know, going back to the beginnings, you know, 2013, 2014, um, just about the way the industry works? Yeah. Uh, hmm. I mean, I think two things. I think. The first thing I would say, um, and, and a lot of people talk, I, the reason I want to say the first one before the second one is that most people talk about the, the opportunity you're going after, the narrative, the storytelling. It's super, super important. I do think that, especially when you're going after a problem uh, that most people don't know a lot about, it's equally important to really understand the data. Mm -hmm. And to really understand your industry, the competitive landscape, your unit economics, um, how are you going to actually pursue this solution? Those things are extremely important because, you know, it's something people can't wrap their head around. And so as wonderful of a story it is, 
it's really, really important to be able to like have the data points that push that person over the edge. Um, and so I think, you know, that was something that, uh, you know, I had the story, right? Like, cause I believed so strongly in what we were going to go do that was there. But if I didn't have the other piece, I think in some ways, look, I'm like soft-spoken, I'm petite, I'm go, I'm, I'm trying to solve a problem in emerging markets for the underserved, convincing people that based on Android data and behavioral data, we can actually credit score individuals sitting like millions of miles away from us, right? Uh, it's a pretty like out there kind it's of- not very far back when you put it that way, yeah. Yeah, and so I think had I not brought, you know, like that first conversation with our angel investor and being able to say like, here's our DCF, right? Here's our unit economics, here's our assumptions. Um, I'm, I'm not sure the conversation would have panned out the same way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Shifting from, I guess, like learning about business and, and, and the industry and markets. What about learning about the self? So you mentioned a little bit about um, radical trust. Are there other things um, that you look back and you see how you've developed as a person, either consciously or unconsciously, that you think have been really helpful for you? I mean, I think uh, authenticity. So, you know, even even during this time of being in a global pandemic, um, I think in some ways, something that, you know, I've, I've done with our team has been really authentic about what we know and what we don't know. Um, and that, that is now, that's during challenging times that we've faced throughout the years. Um, because I think, again, it's like, I don't think of myself as the founder, the CEO, this person that's done this before. And so what's the point in kind of putting up a front? It's not to say that you shouldn't lead with confidence and lead with decisiveness, but I think you can be really authentic and say, this is what I know to the best of my abilities and the knowledge I have today. But, you know, two months from now, if something changes, I might make a different decision, right? And like, hopefully I think what that does is it puts us all in some ways, like it, it makes us all feel like we're part of one team. Um, and I, and I think, I think, um, I don't know, it's like all you can ask for, right? Like <laughs> we haven't done this before. This isn't a problem that's been solved. And so if we, like, if, if that had already been the case, um, then we wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Do, do you or uh, the company use any sort of like coaching or um, other personal development type products or, or services? Um, I have a coach. Um, and I think, uh, in terms of other personal development products, um, not really. I mean, like we do, uh, like we've got meditations, um, you know, I like something I, I put on my calendar that's helped me a lot is, um, I ask myself questions on a daily basis. Um, so I'll start every morning with journaling about three questions and then end every day with that. And so, Again, in the spirit of like just sharing what works for me with our team, um, I make my calendar fully public. And so they can read the questions that I write to myself. Um, they can't read my journal. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. yeah. So but it, it's like, you know, it's it's actually again. And I write, um, you know, weekly CEO letters kind of telling them what's on my mind. And so a lot of people on the team have said, you know, personal development wise, like 
meditation, journaling, um, those kinds of things have actually helped them um, in, you know, in their own work as well. Um, so I want to, uh, wrap things up with, uh, some fun questions about FinTech, uh, pretty easy stuff, but might be a little controversial. We'll see. Okay. Uh, so we're just going to do rapid fire here, you know, last five minutes. Um, what do you think is missing in FinTech today? Um, something that you think will be huge or is really necessary, um, needs more attention. Hmm. I mean, I think what I see is. Um, a lot of fintechs uh, are coming in and, and they are, I think, really developing strong relationships with customers, um, very different than what banks have done, very much like human relationships. Um, I think the thing that's still missing is that most fintechs are still focused on the you know prime segment. Um, so what I would love to see is more fintechs, both in the U.S. and in emerging markets, come downstream. I think that the reality is some massive, massive underserved population. Um, and I think that, you know, look, like the customer is hungry for competition. So I would love to see that change. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's definitely, um, I mean, whether you call it uh, underbanked, unbanked, financial inclusion, so much opportunity and a massive, massive population to serve. Um, who's your favorite fintech investor? Um, I would say Nick Shalik from Ribbit Capital. Okay. And what do you like most about Nick? Um, what I like about Nick is not only is he extremely supportive um, of the companies that he invests in, um, I think what he's really focused on is supporting them through questioning. So he's not trying to give you the answers. He is acting very much as a coach and as a mentor. Um, and helping you kind of see through the risks in your business by you actually identifying them. Um, and I think that has been extremely helpful for me. Awesome. Um, let's talk about cryptocurrency real quick. Do you think there's a role for cryptocurrency in what Tala is doing? Um, I do. I mean, the fact that we work across four different countries already um, the idea of currency exchange and kind of having some stable uh, value would be very useful for us. Um, I can see that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about some of the efforts uh, around stable coins or Libra uh, in emerging markets? Um, so I'm on the board of Stellar. Um, so, you know, again, I think that there there is I think there's a vision there. Um, I think all I can say is that at the moment, um, I think the way we're going about it is not is not correct from most place companies. Um, and then I think the big question I have is like, will it be companies like us using it, or will we really get to a place where the consumer is actually interacting with it? That I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, what's your favorite other than Tala and Stellar? What is your favorite fintech company? <laughs> um, so what I would say is I would actually probably say, I think Tencent, um, I would say Alibaba. Um, I, I think that the innovation that we've seen um, in Asia has just been incredible because not only are they melding 
you know, kind of gaming, consumer apps, and fintech together. Um, and it's because of the fact that, like, they, again, are looking at this consumer holistically. Um, and so for me, I think those are some of the most exciting fintechs out there. Yeah, they also have, I mean, just incredible scale uh, when they push out their products. Okay, so last question um, for all of the founders who are listening in, whether they're starting, uh, you know, a tech startup or a nonprofit or, or something else entirely, um, what kind of advice would you give them uh, to think about and to keep in mind as they're getting started? I would say one, find a problem that you can't stop thinking about. Uh, know that problem inside and out. Talk to anyone that you possibly can about it. Um, so before you start, know whether anybody else is solving that problem um, because you may not need to actually start something. So I think that's the first thing that you have to do. The second thing I would say is that um, don't be afraid of, again, putting yourself out there, being vulnerable, asking for feedback. Um, you'd be really surprised where it can come from or what opportunities can open up um, as you actually just go try. Um, and then I think the third thing is like, just constantly kind of go back and it's hard, right? Like you're going to have bad days, but whether it's going for a walk, whether it's journaling, like in the beginning days, it's so important to keep going back to that problem and to kind of find ways to keep believing in yourself. Um, and sort of like having your own toolkit for what gets you to just do the same thing again the next day or try again. Um, and so I would say those three things have really served me the best along the journey. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the insights and advice. And um, we're really excited to see uh, Tala continue to grow and, and help people going forward. Thank you so much for having me.